Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Carolyn Tui, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and Distinguished Fellow in the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, who has written extensively about comparative public policy, including significant work on healthcare reform in Canada, the US, and elsewhere. But that introduction hardly scratches the surface. She is, in my judgment, one of the nicest and most interesting policy scholars that Canada has had over the past several decades. Her interests are far-reaching, including a growing focus on the role of policy narratives in influencing the success or failure of policy reforms. She's recently published a long-form essay in Policy Options entitled, To Be a Policy Optimist, Try Some Rose-Colored Realism, which I'd strongly encourage listeners to check out. I'm grateful to speak with her about the essay, including the power of narrative in the public policy toolkit, the optimism-pessimism fault line that runs through a lot of contemporary policy thinking, and her answer in the form of rose-colored realism. Carolyn, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the essay. John, thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, I'm, I'm honored to join the illustrious company of your interviewees, and I very much look forward to our conversation. Let's start with the idea of narrative itself. You're a hardcore empiricist, a scholar-scholar. Yet, you've spent a lot of time in the past few years exploring the literary and creative arts and other unconventional sources to better understand narrative as a literary device and a means for understanding the world around us. What led you on this scholarly journey? And help us understand what you mean by narrative in the public policy context. Is it merely a fancy way to describe a communications plan, or is it something bigger? Thanks, Sean. Uh, Great way to start. I was led into this journey by a dissatisfaction, in fact, with how the term narrative is used in the policy process. It is much used and much abused in (laughs) talking about public policy. Very often, it just means spin, or maybe theme, or rationale. But understanding the power of narrative requires that we really get serious about what the narrative form is as a mode of discourse. And Here I would just note that although certainly this exploration has taken me in some very new and interesting directions and into some very insightful conversations with people in pursuits I hadn't engaged with before, it has not led me to weaken my commitment to rigor in uh, comparative work. And so I think if we understand narrative, we understand the distinctive characteristics of narrative, we can begin to understand how they are employed in different contexts and the kinds of effects they have in different contexts. Comparing narratives of different types and uh, and across jurisdictions. So, what is narrative? Narrative is a, is a distinctive form of discourse. 
It has two essential features. There is a plot with a narrative arc with a past, a present, and a future. And it has characters with motives that drive the plot or at least are affected by the plot. Now, there are other things like setting and perspective and very often moral, but those two things, plot and character, are essential to narratives. It's not just an account of a series of events. Let me paraphrase E.M. Forster by saying the, the king died and then the queen died is an account. The king died and then the queen died of grief is a narrative. So... The combination of plot and character gives narrative a distinctive power. The narrative logic of the plot, this happened, and therefore that happened, and therefore that happened, is it gives us a, a kind of causal sense, a kind of causality. It's not scientific causality. If I control this variable and modify that variable, I'll get the same result always and everywhere. It's not that. It's not that universal, although it may have universal appeal. It's this happened, and therefore that happened in this particular time and place to these particular characters. Okay. What that does is it appeals to, in the first instance, our intellect, because it gives us this kind of causal road that we can follow, path that we can follow. But it also appeals to our imagination and our emotions because it asks us to imagine ourselves into the lives, into the experience of the characters, and in some cases, to feel empathy for those characters. So this distinctive appeal, both to the intellect and to the imagination and emotions, is something that only narrative has. That is powerful, well, in many contexts, including the policy process. And there can be different kinds of narratives, and we need to understand that, that there are sweeping epics across generations, or there are much more intimate anecdotes that are kind of like vignettes or snapshots uh, of an individual's experience or a community's experience. I was recently with a, with a policymaker of some longstanding who talked about seeing policies as novels or as short stories. So there is this question of scale and, and, and pace in a, in a novel that can take different forms. There are different motifs. There are tragedies. There are comedies. There are romances. There are satires. My dear friend and colleague Deborah Stone talks about stories of rising, stories of decline, stories of thwarted progress. All of these things play out in the policy process. So what I'm trying to do is to understand how narratives take on these different forms, how they fit or do not fit with particular contexts, what the effect of that is, and to do it in as rigorous a way as possible while being true to the nature of narrative discourse. What are some of the key takeaways from your research thus far? Why don't you give an example or two of instances where a strong narrative, or perhaps a, a weak or misaligned one, have supported or undermined policy progress? Well, as you mentioned, Sean, I've, I've spent a good deal of time on health policy. A, a lot of my 
work in the last few decades has been on health policy. Let me let me take a couple of examples from that field. So here's an example of a of an epic narrative that really buttressed a policy agenda. And it's the adoption of the National Health Service in the uh, United Kingdom after the Second World War. So the NHS, National Health Service, NHS, was put forward as an example, an instance of within a a national narrative of rebuilding, post-war rebuilding. It was actually conceived in the context of the war itself. The Beverage Commission, which recommended the NHS amongst a number of other social reforms, was published in 1942. And it looked forward to British victory and to the rebuilding of national institutions after the war. It was an optimistic narrative in that regard. And it galvanized public attention. It was actually a bestseller. There were, and I don't think this is an apocryphal story, there were lineups <laughs> at government bookstores for purchasing the beverage report. There were cartoons about British soldiers hoisting a glass to beverage. It was an it was a powerful British epic of victory and national a national institution. So that sense of the NHS as a national institution, universal in its coverage, everybody treated the same way, was lodged in the in the British imagination. And I have an, an article that looks at anniversary narratives of the NHS. Every 10 years, there is a, a recognition in Parliament and other places, um, celebrating the establishment of the NHS and telling the stories of the original heroes and the stewards who have uh, kept the flame alive along the way. So back to Beveridge and back to Nye Bevan, the, the labor leader who brought it in. So there is an instance in which a narrative buttressed and sustained a policy over decades. It's not the only set of forces in play, but a very important one. Now, let's contrast that to what happened in the U.S. when the U.S. finally made its its more or less successful push to universal coverage with the Affordable Care Act under Barack Obama. Still not at full universal coverage, but got closer than anybody else. But they did that by making a series of relatively small adjustments to the existing system, maintaining the employer-based private insurance system and and building around it, um, regulating the small group and individual market, and taking the occasion to add numerous, numerous small changes from the wish lists of, of policy schools around the country in a very, very complex package that nonetheless was about relatively small adjustments to the existing system. Many, many small adjustments. Initially, they that was presented within an epic by Obama himself. Americans have always risen to the challenge. We have enormous challenges before us in the wake of the, of the financial crisis. 
the yes we can narrative of Barack Obama was was very very much positioning that moment uh, within an overall epic of large American accomplishments. The problem was that it was a set of small adjustments. It wasn't an establishment of a new national institution like the NHS, so it didn't fit within an epic frame. What it did fit was a democratic epic of a crusade for universal services, but that is to say a large D democratic. So the Republicans on their side had a crusade, which was to resist the overweening state. And here was this massive set of interventions, all of them relatively small, but touching many parts of the health system that they could portray as, as government overweening. The Democrats then reverted to a greater emphasis on anecdotes, how each of these small adjustments was going to affect individual lives. And that was more successful. And polling showed that if you ask people about their support for individual aspects of the Affordable Care Act, they would by and large be supportive. Majorities would be supportive. If you asked about the entire act, no, you could not get majority support. So there's an example of narratives that did or did not fit with the policies that they were meant to buttress and mobilize understanding of and support for. That's tremendous insight on the role of narrative, Carolyn. I, I want to turn now to your recent essay for policy options and how it applies your thinking about the role of narrative to how we confront the myriad of challenges, including climate change, aging demographics, geopolitical conflicts, etc., facing our societies. I want to begin there, in fact. You cite Adam Tooze, who's described the current moment as a, quote, polycrisis. We've previously had Ian Bremmer on the podcast who makes a similar argument. Let me ask you, how much do you think the current moment is indeed historically notable in terms of the scale and scope of the challenges we face versus itself being a manifestation of narrative? That is to say, do you think we're actually living in a moment of extraordinary crisis? Or have we collectively told ourselves that story so much that it's become true in a way? Well, it, we can certainly point to times in the past when there was a, a seemingly overwhelming confluence of uh, or coincidence of, of, ch of challenges to societies. In the article, I give the example of the year 1848 in Europe when this confluence of uh, social and economic and technological disruptions manifested itself differently in, in different nations, but generated these simultaneous uprisings in, in nations with very different political systems. And so it was a kind of an experience of, of polycrisis, if you will, multiple, multiple clashing challenges. And one can give other examples, but I think it is undeniable that the, the scale and the scope and the velocity of the current challenges of climate change, the pandemic, technological disruption, um, surpasses what previous generations have experienced. But those occasions of simultaneous challenges are crises only to the extent that they overwhelm our capacity as a society to respond. 
And one can make the argument that our capacity to respond is also of a scale and scope. It, it, our, our arsenal of, of response capacity, of, of our arsenal of knowledge and technology and social organization that we can mobilize is greater than it has been in the past. Whether the challenges and the response capacity have increased commensurately is something <laughs> we can argue about, but that is really the crux of the optimism versus pessimism divide. Do we think that we have, have grown, that our capacity has grown proportionately to the scale of challenges that we face? Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. In that vein, I want to ask about the current political salience of nostalgia and pessimism. I think, for instance, of the juxtaposition between Donald Trump's American carnage and Ronald Reagan's mourning in America. Assuming politicians understand their own self-interest, it suggests that nostalgia and pessimism sell more these days than optimism. What do you think is behind that? Why do you think we've become more responsive to backwards-looking or negative narratives? Yeah, I've, I have wondered about this. Um, but I think, and, and my, my investigations have led me to maybe question the premise of, of, your, uh, of your question, Sean, that the evidence that pessimism is on the increase is, in fact, mixed at best. In most national and cross-national studies suggest that it has moved, that is, optimism and pessimism, have moved up and down around a pretty stable timeline over the last few decades, hmm. um, although the level of, the, of each varies across uh, particular nations. And of course, as well, there are spikes that are associated with events like the like the 2008-9 financial crisis, like the pandemic. You see pessimism going up. Sources like the EU barometer in, in Europe that monitor public opinion according to standard questions over time suggest that despite this bouncing around, levels of... Uh, at least economic optimism and pessimism were essentially the same in 2022 as they were in 1996. So it's not at all clear that there is, in fact, a consistent upward trend. And I, I think what I would say is that there are inclinations to both optimism and pessimism in, in any given population, in any given individual, that can be activated by different events and different political appeals. And you're, you're absolutely right that some politicians have found it quite effective to activate pessimism, to tap into pessimism. Larry Bartels, my, one of my political science colleagues in the U.S., makes a related point um, in his recent book, Democracy Erodes from the Top. 
And he uses European data to show that satisfaction that there's a standard question in the European uh, social values survey that asks, how satisfied are you with the way democracy works in your country? And he shows that over time, in fact, to my surprise, that indicator has bounced around a bit, but has been essentially stable from 2000 to 2020. And that helps to explain why we see the turfing of an illiberal government in Poland. It's, it, it, you know, that these different inclinations can be activated by uh, political leaders who are able to appeal to them. So I think what the, the real question is, what explains the rise of those politicians? What explains you know, what explains the Viktor Orbans and Donald Trumps of, of the world? And it's not, to my mind, uh, shifts in the, in the underlying inclinations of the population. It's the emergence of, of politicians with differential abilities to activate optimism or, or pessimism, respectively. Bartel suggests that very often this is just a matter of public dissatisfaction with long-serving incumbent governments and they turn to another another alternative that that may be the case uh, but I think we just do not know enough yet to explain why we have seen a coincidence of politicians who are able to activate pessimism hmm. I think we need to explore that question as a matter of supply and not demand to put it in the most precise terms that's a fascinating insight, Kellen, and I'm inclined to defer to you. You're the empiricist. Um, one can't help but feel like, and it's manifested, for instance, in polling about people's views concerning the, the future of their children, that there does seem to be pessimism about the future of our societies. And in that vein, let me put a question to you, and, and I'd, I'd, I'd be interested in, in your reaction. The controversial Silicon Valley investor Peter Thiel has argued that a big part of the problem is that there are no compelling visions of the future on offer these days. We used to talk about space exploration and curing diseases and transforming transportation and energy, etc. As he often puts it, quote, we were promised flying cars and all we got was 140 characters. <laughs> At the core of his argument, is that we've collectively chosen security over dynamism and safety over risk. And I wonder sometimes, Carolyn, how much of that is a function of our aging demographics? The baby boomers were once future-oriented, and now they're not, and we still live in a society dominated by their preferences and tastes. What do you think about that argument? And the extent to which you agree, how do we create the conditions for optimism and a future orientation in an aging society? Well, first off, I think that uh, that Thiel is really onto something in terms of the lack of a compelling narrative of the future. I'm not sure that it has to do with with shifting demographics, and if it is shifting demographics, it, it may in fact be because the largest generation is now not the boomers but the millennials, and there is again some pretty consistent research that suggests both in populations and, and smaller scale studies that suggest that people are in fact least optimistic in their 20s and 30s. 
and that optimism tends to rise into the 50s and 60s and even and through the 70s until it takes another dip in the 80s and then rises again, pretty much in response to life events. So, you know, things tend to go south in many ways in, in one's <laughs> 80s. And if you make it to your 90s, you feel pretty optimistic. So, um, so there, there, there may be something demographic going on, but I don't think it's the pessimism of the boomer generation. If anything, I think it's the pessimism of the millennial generation. Um, but, but again, I think that creating the conditions for optimism depends more on, on supply than on, than on demand. I think we need to be taking policy actions. And I can say more about this that, that can be framed within a, an optimistic future oriented narrative. And then in fact, drive that narrative forward. And as you know, from the article that I, uh, that you cite, I suggest that we, we do that by looking for strengths that we can build on and not just, uh, you know, deficits that we need to, we need to remedy. In that vein, your essay cites examples of possibly different interpretations of the same issues. You argue, for instance, that there's a positive and negative way to see our progress or lack of progress on inequality and climate change. As I read the examples, I wondered about the extent to which these competing interpretations may be rooted in a basic set of left-right normative differences, by which I mean progressives are motivated by addressing injustice in the society, and so they see the persistence of certain problems in negative terms. Conservatives start with lower expectations about our ability to solve problems rooted in human nature, and so any signs of progress are viewed in positive terms. What do you think about that framework, Carolyn? Is the optimism-pessimism fault line, in a way, a manifestation of the different expectations of those on the left and the right? So that's a really interesting, a really interesting question, a really interesting line of thought. I'm, in fact, I thought you were going to go in the opposite direction uh, or in the inverse direction, because your your question actually inverts a more, I don't know, traditional view, I guess, of of progressivism and and conservatism that would see progressivism's positive view of human potential as leading to a belief in a continuing trajectory of improvement and progress over time. Uh, whereas conservatives, conservative, there's a conservative inclination to be more skeptical um, and cautious about the inevitability of progress. So whichever way one frames the potential alignment, there may be something to be learned by thinking about how these different expectations are either dashed or or buttressed by the experience of events. And that would be, in fact, quite consistent with the narrative approach, how things play out in, in the sequence of events. But that being said, I don't think we actually observe a consistent alignment of optimism and pessimism with any political position. Again, in the empirical evidence, the, the, these narratives are available to both left and right, and they are deployed by both left and right, as well as by liberals and populist conceptions of uh, those with liberal and populist conceptions of democracy. So, in fact, there is the example of Trump's American carnage versus uh, Reagan's morning in America, both emanating from the right. When in Canada, we've had sunny ways from the left and uh, everything is broken from the right. So 
polls, in fact, suggest that whether one thinks that the country is, is or is not going in the right direction depends a lot on whether your preferred party is in power at the moment. So I, I don't know that there's a, a stable alignment between these views and left-right political orientations. I want to turn now to the public policy implications of your call to change our starting position for assessing problems. You write the following, quote, Instead of asking why the level of, insert policy problem here, income inequality, carbon emissions, biodiversity loss, and on and on, is so high, what happens if we ask why it is not higher? Why did each of these phenomena not continue on their seemingly inexorable rate of increase? What are the factors that caused them to plateau or countervailed them, and how can we strengthen those factors? And what if instead of asking where the problems are worst, we look to places where they've been mitigated. What can we learn from success stories? Unquote. Let me ask a two-part question. First, how do you think it would influence the public policy development process itself? And second, what do you think the consequences would be in terms of galvanizing public action? So let me combine the two parts of your question, Sean, because I think they are inherently intertwined. The kinds of success stories that I'm talking about are in places where policymakers have approached communities looking not for deficits and deficiencies that need to be remedied, but rather for strengths that can be built on, as I said in response to your previous question. And in Canada, I think we have some great examples in Indigenous finance models that build on Indigenous networks and community bonds and traditional knowledge and cross-generational perspectives. And we're gaining some experience with these models now that range from sustainable development on Haida Gwaii to housing in northern Quebec and many others in between. And there's a, there's a lot to be learned as we live through this experience and explore other possibilities. So that's a way uh, that that policy has been shaped by, I think, an approach that focuses on strengths, not deficiencies, and it can galvanize further action, I think, because those actions in themselves have mobilized new coalitions, mm. and very important in the policy process. So we now have a growing set of policy actors who have experience of real partnership between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples and sources of finance uh, and other resources. And those coalitions can, can drive further action. So I, I see considerable reason for hope in that sort of local action that focuses on building on strength. Let me stay on the subject of galvanizing public action. We hear a lot these days about low morale in the public service. There are, of course, various factors, but one wonders if the tendency towards negative or pessimistic framing can be overwhelming, and if the antidote isn't the type of aspirational framing that you outline in the essay. I thought about this when I read the following sentences, quote, a focus on the downside might ultimately lead to some of the same conclusions, but if you want to attract the talent and the fire 
and the enthusiasm of the next generation of policymakers who will wrestle with these issues, we should surely offer more than the challenge of making a hopeless future more tolerable, unquote. Why don't you talk about the need to recruit high-quality people into government and politics, and whether you think a positive frame may ultimately help make those efforts more successful? Well, this is a question dear to my heart, given my long involvement with our master public policy program uh, at the Monk School, as you say, um, which is aimed at educating the next generation of policy leaders. And I was inspired to write the particular article in Policy Options in large part by my observation um, of the degree of pessimism amongst some of our very talented students in our graduate programs. So I was hoping to respond and to uh, turn that around. And I was very gratified by the response to, to the article. And one colleague in particular sent me, pointed me to a, a LinkedIn post by a young policy professional whom I don't know, um, who read the article and posted that uh, after a long week, it was just what she needed to remind her of how we ought, ought to approach our work. And I thought, uh, that's exactly, that's <laughs> that's who I wanted to reach. And I was uh, enormously gratified by, by uh, her response. And really, why join any enterprise that is doomed to failure? Why not offer these creative, dynamic, talented young people the prospect of creating some success and, and pointing to how to get that done? I'd be remiss, though, if we didn't come back to your earlier observations about the supply-demand problem. How have you thought about the supply problem, Caroline? What are the set of institutions, instruments, and ideas that can overcome what appears to be a growing supply of political actors who who instrumentalize pessimism? I think the best way to respond is to, to the extent possible, build shared projects that both draw on, but also populate shared narratives. Policies are actions within narratives. Policies are events within narratives. A narrative by itself is not enough. A narrative needs to be populated with action in people's lives. Uh, that is to say, a policy narrative is is needs to be populated by by action that has effect in people's lives that then drive the narrative forward and into the future. So my, my own sense and my own hope is that the, the best prospect for that is probably local. There is again some evidence that suggests that people tend to be more optimistic about things that are closer to home, both physically and in their, their own social networks than they are about things that are more remote. Even business leaders tend to be more economically optimistic about the prospects for their own firms than for the economy as a whole. People tend to be more optimistic about uh, the prospects in their own lives than in society as a whole. Not across the board, but the, that seems to be the balance of the research. 
Also, there's some interesting evidence from mostly from European sources that respondents to polls tend to be more positive about conditions in their own community across a range of of social challenges than they are about their the broader societies as a whole. So there's probably a, a better seedbed for optimism at the at the local level. And this fits with a, a more general policy agenda, I think, of focusing on localities and cities and building shared action there as a way of not only recognizing the vitality and the dynamism of local contexts and their importance in the in in the broader uh, societal context, uh, but also in their potential to to demonstrate uh, our ability to work together and to uh, generate positive social outcomes. So. I, I would look to primarily to shared projects at the local level. I go back to my example of Indigenous finance, but one can think of many others in localities, large and small, um, across the country. Uh, there really is something to the notion of the politics of place. And I think we, uh, we need to, we need to be seizing uh, those opportunities locally and to be encouraging dynamic people to take action at the local level it may it, it it's a more manageable scale for one thing and as i say i think the the seedbed for optimism is greatest there let me put a penultimate question to you we're speaking in a moment when we're seeing real life tests to liberalism and pluralism in our cities it seems clear to me anyway that we're more divided than i understood how do you think your ideas fit in that context can they in theory help to create shared narratives and projects? Well, Sean, I think I would pretty much respond the way I did to your immediately previous question. That, uh, yes, I mean, our cities have been platforms recently for uh, for the demonstration of our differences. There's, you know, there's no doubt about that. But as I say, I, I believe that they also offer the conditions for real experience that can be framed within a broader positive narrative, real experience of, of shared projects. Even, uh, I mean, one, one can point to examples even across the divides that have been demonstrated by literally demonstrations that, uh, that tend to be local in their focus, but people from different communities, communities that there are themselves in conflict, reaching across for various kinds of uh, forms of reconciliation and highlighting those and building on those and, and, and providing resources to those shared projects of reconciliation, I think, can, uh, again, can help to, to fuel narratives that, that are more optimistic. You're being modest. I would just say in parentheses for listeners, this essay was actually released in and around Hamas's uh, terrorist attacks against Israel. And, you know, it seems to me as we grapple with how those attacks and the ensuing conflict has come to manifest itself through our society, Carolyn's thinking about shared narratives and shared projects strikes me as a, a way forward out of um, the tension and conflict that we've seen over the past several weeks, which perhaps is a good segue to my final question. I want to wrap up with something of an optimism test for you. Are you optimistic that our policy and politics are going to be injected with greater optimism 
And if not, what can we do to improve the conditions for optimism? That's a fair question, Sean. And uh, I would I would not be honest if I did not admit that I succumbed to pessimism, if not sheer dread on, <laughs> on occasion. But let me um, wrap up with an apocryphal parable that I refer to in the article, the, the parable of the wolves. And it goes, uh, we, we all have two wolves fighting within us. There is the wolf of hope and grace, and there is the wolf of anger and despair. So which one wins? The one you feed. And that goes back to my point about the inclinations within any individual and any population to both optimism and pessimism. And it depends which wolf we feed. Which, which inclination we seek to activate. And in my optimistic moments, what I imagine and what I think I increasingly see uh, is local action that can start a virtuous circle of policies and projects that are events within narratives that then inspire further policies and projects. I've given some examples of where I see this happening. And so in the end, I, I think I, I think I see a prospect for my optimistic wolf to win. What a wonderful way to end the conversation. The, the essay for policy options is entitled To Be a Policy Optimist, Try Some Rose Color Realism. Carolyn Tui, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you very much for having me, Sean. Thank you for listening to The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. Please share this episode of Hub Dialogues with friends and family and leave us a review wherever you get your audio online. You can also go to our website, www.thehub.ca, to sign up for our free weekly newsletter featuring the best of The Hub's journalism and commentary. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolovsky Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.